Hey, and thanks for listening in to a special edition of the Christ Alone podcast. Uh, this is a special edition in that this is a recording from some material of a Bible study that I've been working on going through the Gospel of Mark. This is the fourth week in the study, so if you want to hear uh, the other three, they are available online as well uh, at this podcast feed. So go back and try to start from the beginning if you're interested. Or if not, you want to stick through this one, we're glad to have you and, and hope you'll enjoy it and, and listen in. Um, if you have any questions about the gospel or any content, any feedback, anything you'd like to ask me more about on the content of this podcast, please do get a hold of me. I'd love to hear from you. You can get a hold of me probably the easiest way is through Facebook at facebook.com backslash dolechek, D-O-L-E-C-H-E-C-K. And... Uh, and I'd love to get your feedback and, and thoughts on anything that you have, questions you may have as far as um, this podcast and the material that we're covering. Um, so what we're going to do here on this podcast anyway is uh, there'll be a little bit of introductory material that I'll go through. And then part of the study that we are doing, we're just taking the time to actually read through the entire gospel. So after the introduction, I will go ahead and fill the role of the reader and be reading uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, through chapter 10, verse 52. So after some introductory material, you'll hear me read the text, and then we'll get into the discussion. Thanks for listening. As far as introductory material there, um, we're entering now really kind of the second half here of the Gospel of Mark. We have this... Confession of Christ, that Caesarea Philippi that Peter makes about, we really get the final culmination of who Jesus is. And from this point on, uh, there's been kind of three acts up to this point of Jesus starting his ministry in and around Galilee, some more ministry around Galilee, then kind of into the some Samaritan areas or some uh, Gentile areas. And now here at this point, they're at this town Philippi, and from this point on, Jesus kind of uh, the way they talk about it is he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And so from this kind of going forward, in fact, next week we have in chapter 11, if you peek ahead, that's where he's going to enter into Jerusalem. That's the uh, Palm Sunday celebration that you have there in chapter 11. So this whole exchange here is, is Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. It's a big turning point in in a, what... Uh, in the life of Christ, in the gospel of Mark, with this confession of, of Peter's that Jesus is the Christ. Other thing that we've got some more tough teachings here. And so last week, um, you know, I was talking about Jesus is nice as long as he stays in the corner and doesn't uh, put his, you know, whatever, doesn't throw any punches. But what we find when we actually are Bible readers is that Jesus is good, but he's not safe. And that's kind of a famous C.S. Lewis uh, a quote about when he's talking about Aslan, talking about God, says that, uh, of course, he's not safe, but he's good. And the reality that we find when we come into contact with Jesus is that he's good, but that doesn't mean he's safe for people like you and me. That there are lots of things that um, really get called to the table and he um, brings light to just the the radical or the the difficult position, the difficult state that we are in. So three things I put on your sheet. I, I mentioned this last week. 
But I have this law, gospel, sin, grace, redemption, forgiveness of sin. We want to be putting things into these categories all the time when we read our Bible, when we sit down and listen to someone preach, when we come to a Bible study. We want to keep these categories separate. Is what he's telling me, is it law or is it gospel? Is he giving me rules or is he giving me the answer? Is he telling me things to do that I'm inevitably going to fail at? Or is he telling me what has been done that I can rest in and trust in? And so it's actually kind of a Lutheran distinctive that this comes from. Martin Luther really pushes on the idea of law and gospel distinctions. But the reason why I say all of that is that there's going to be some heavy law in here when we get to this teaching section. And we don't want to become people that... Uh, because the law makes us uncomfortable, often our first reaction is to kind of trim off the hard edges of the law. And so we don't have this kind of rock-solid brick of here's the law of God. We end up with a massage ball. We kind of, you know, we work out, oh, this feels good. The law, the, the gospel is not just taking off the hard edges of the law. It's letting the hard edges of the law exist, condemn us, show us our sin, Show us who we really are. And it's important to keep those because once it's revealed who we really are, then the gospel can come in and it's truth and it's deliverance and it's good news and then deliver us. So we want to keep both of these realities. We want to keep a clear eye on the law of God and at the same time not quit with law and get discouraged, but always hear the gospel and what what uh, Jesus has done in response to strict law. So we want to keep both of these things up there. It just is, it's prevalent in our churches um, that are, we end up being just law based all the time. And what we end up with is here is a list of five things, of three things, of ten principles, seven things is a very good Bible number. Here's seven things, number of perfection for you to do. And as Maybe as placid and as nice as those things may be, at the end of the day, they're just law. They're things that crush us. And what we, what we need is not a do, but we need to hear a done. That's enough of me blathering So on this intro because we've got a lot of text to read. So we're going to read all the way through this. And again, the reason why we are doing this is we want to let the text have the primary voice in our conversation, even though... Anyway, <laughs> and here I've just started. So uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 is where we're going to start. Read a big chunk. I'll say a prayer and then we'll get into it. Father, I thank you for the chance just to gather in this room tonight and to sit under the teaching of your word to us. We want to hear your voice. And I know that the world is clamoring and, and looking and longing that they would hear your voice. And, and what we get to do tonight is sit down and hear your voice. This is you speaking to us. This is the, the Holy Spirit-inspired word to us. And so give us ears, we pray. We would hear what you have for us to hear. Give us eyes. We would see what you want us to see. God, help us. Help us. See you for who you are. See ourselves for who we are. See the gospel for the good news that it is that we might put our trust and our joy and our hope in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? 
And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If any one would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to hear, bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, 
You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what this saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If any one will be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child, and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone, a great millstone, were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as like a, like a child shall not enter it. 
and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. All right, so there we go. Another long portion of the Gospel of Mark. We won't get to everything. I've got five things in your outline that we're going to kind of look at, which means we're going to leave out. I have thir- I have 13 things on my list of things to talk about, and I've got to cram a few of them together. So we're not, I mean, it's like I listened through last week's as I was editing the audio and realized we talked about the feeding of the 5,000 and didn't mention anything about how that's a picture of communion and the Last Supper I mean, there's been that, I'm like, oh, we really could have talked about that. We just didn't have time. So there's going to be tons of things tonight that we could talk about. But we just, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to get everything covered. So, um, but if you do want to interject or ask later or whatever, make a note in your outline and ask online. We can have a lot of conversation on Facebook and stuff about these things. But please, if you think of anything or have any questions, either shout them out or make a note of them so we can talk, of them at, talk about them at some point. So number one in our outline is... The revealing of the man, I think, right? We have the man and the mission. And this is where we finally, the disciples finally kind of see. We've had, who's confessed so far? Who's seen who Jesus is so far? There's been a particular type of person that has called Jesus uh, who he is all along through the Gospel of Mark so far. Any guesses on what type of person that was that said, you are the Christ, you are the son of God. Have mercy on me. Send me to the pigs. A certain type of person. A demon-possessed person. All along these past eight chapters, the demons have got it right. They're like, you're somebody who has authority over me. Please don't kill me. The demons have got it right. But up to this point, no one really has figured out who Jesus is. We've been a couple of places, and we see later on down here, um, that they're asking, is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist come back? Herod says the same thing. John the Baptist is back after I beheaded him. But Jesus kind of, it's an interesting conversation they have. It kind of is nice for a while. And he says, you know, well, who do people say that I am? And they kind of say, oh, you know, some people say this and that. And, oh, that's really interesting. And then he kind of pulls out all the politeness and says, who do you say that I am? And we all have our foundational questions. And People frame life with questions sometimes. And you're trying to, if you ever get into an intimate conversation with somebody where they're trying to help you figure life out, there's usually a few basic questions people will ask somebody. Um, they'll ask, you know, what truly makes you happy? What uh, what does your true self really want? They'll say, um, they'll ask questions about if you go to a psychologist, they'll ask you what trauma defines you? What's happened in your life that's made you this way? And there's all sorts of foundational questions that get thrown out there kind of as the building block of life. Well, one of the foundational questions that Jesus has, and and a huge foundational question in Christianity is just this one. And I think we have warrant to make this a personal question where Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? Who, yeah, everyone's got their opinions, Everyone has these ideas. 
uh, a good teacher, a moral man, uh, someone who did worked miracles, a magician, a lunatic, uh, you know, all sorts of things, a real nice guy. But at the end of the day, he's asking his disciples, and in a roundabout way, the question's coming to us tonight as well. Who do you say that he is? Who do we say that he is? Um, Peter answers, and this is the first declaration we have. He says, you are the Christ. Now, I'll share that Jesus Christ is not Jesus' first name and last name. Like Darren Dolacek, Jesus Christ, it's not the way it works, right? Christ is his title, okay? So he's Jesus, a very common name back then. And then Christ is his title. It's his... Uh, like doctor or... Like doctor, something yeah, okay. like that. Yeah, that's, that's his position. Um, king, this is the, the Hebrew... Uh, the, this is the Greek word Christos, which also is uh, the Hebrew word for Messiah or anointed one. When we did our meta-narrative study and we talked about redemption in the Old Testament, they're constantly looking for the Messiah, looking for the Anointed One, looking for the Christ. And this is who Peter says that he is. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one we've been looking for. Um, but I think it's good to sit with this question sometimes of, who do I say Jesus is? You know, a popular t-shirt went around, Jesus is my homeboy. <laughs> and, I mean, whatever. Um, if you're Carrie Underwood, he's your co-pilot or what? He's like the guy that takes your wheel when you... Isn't it Carrie Underwood? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm just making... I thought I knew that. But so Jesus take the wheel. Or we have Jesus is my co-pilot, right? Because whenever I can't figure out how to fly my plane anymore, Jesus comes in and he helps me out. Uh, you know, or there's all sorts of analogies that I think are probably at bottom terrible when it comes to who Jesus is. He's my helper. He's the guy who comes in and, you know, when I can't finish the race, he helps me make it across the finish line. Well, no, I mean, that's that's not, he's, he's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the savior. He's the rescuer. He's the one the world has been waiting for. And this is who the man is. He is the Christ. We could go to tons of places uh, and cross-reference in our Bibles all of the places they're looking for uh, the anointed one. Psalm 2, 2 is one of the places you could go that just talks about the coming of the anointed one. Um, but all along the way, right, we have Genesis 3.15 is the, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel which is where it talks about that the seed of the woman in the curse of Eve, the seed of the woman uh, will have his heel bruised, but he will bruise the head of the serpent. And this is that promised one, and, and Peter gets it right. This is who he says Jesus is. So sometimes you should sit around and ask yourself the question, who am I saying Jesus really is? If I, if I get pressed, who would I say he is? Is he a good teacher? Is he an interesting uh religious figure is he somebody you should listen to or do i go so far as to say he's god he's crazy the christ he's the anointed one he's the messiah so when when like when he's out taking his disciples and healing all these people and stuff and then here it says he warned them not to tell anybody about him mm -hmm. why why if he's going out and helping all these people why doesn't he want people to know about him it is not his time he's a man with a mission and um so this question comes up over and over again, and this, these um, edicts come up over and over again, don't tell anyone about him. When we get down to the transfiguration, 
he takes just uh, his inner circle, right? He takes Peter, James, and John up with him onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and they come down, and he doesn't want them there even to say, I mean, there's this, there's this quietness about who Jesus really is. Maybe that isn't there in this account of the Transfiguration. There's a quietness there, and and we think, well, guys, doesn't why doesn't Jesus? I mean, and and that's what they want to do with the Transfiguration. They want to set up tabernacles. We will jump ahead, but P, uh, Peter, he's like, well, hey, he says he's frightened. He actually doesn't know what he's saying. He's just spouting stuff out. Well, guys, Elijah, Elijah, Moses, Jesus are all in Transfigured. Let's build tabernacles and start a, a multi-site megachurch and get everybody to come see and worship Jesus and. That's not his mission. He, this, they're looking for an exalted king. They're looking for a Messiah who's going to come in and set up his throne in Jerusalem. When the men ask the question, can we sit at your right hand and at your left hand and your glory? They don't mean when you get to heaven. They mean when you go into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, chapter 11, and you go in and the Roman authorities are kicked out and you sit on the throne and you rule from Jerusalem, can we sit on both sides of you? They don't get what Jesus is going to, uh, what's going to happen to him. And so there's a quietness that comes to my mission is not this exalted, um, anointed one in this incarnation. It is a suffering servant. And so there's this real quietness that comes because his, his goal is not the exaltation that they think it is. He's going to be exalted, but it's going to be on a cross, and that's where they're, they're missing it. So we see here in his mission uh, that we have the man and now we have his mission, right? Point number two, the revealing of his mission. There's three prophecies Jesus gives of his death. One in Mark 8, one in Mark 9, one in Mark 10. So Mark 8, 9, and 10, three places, three different chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus reveals what his mission is. And his mission is to die. And there's different descriptions to each one of them with the uh, scribes and the Pharisees. And then there's one of them is about uh, he's going to be tried. And so it, it kind of gives the inclination that it's going to be a legal procedure. But his mission is to die. He says, um, let's see. Uh, and in fact, they, they dislike it so much. Peter gets called Satan here. Mm -hmm. But in verse 31, he says, in chapter 8, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Not just that he will, but there's a mustness, not a mustiness, there's a must, there's a, there's a this must happen to what Jesus is doing. There's a must in this going to the cross. There's a must of Jesus's suffering. And um, the reality is that forgiveness and reconciliation always comes at a cost to somebody. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about forgiveness, it, forgiveness always comes at some sort of cost. So as we, um, I don't know, if we were sitting in my house and oh, I think Nyla like, almost knocked my globe over or something at my house. Mm -hmm. And we'll pretend like we'll pretend like I didn't buy that on eBay for 20 bucks. But we'll say that that was a uh, yeah. that was a real. Uh, yeah, she might have dropped the unholy word, but uh, but anyway, so pretend that's a, that was an ivy globe, you know, it's a two hundred fifty dollar globe, and it's maybe it's more than that. I'll show my ignorance of how much ivy is worth, possibly. I don't know, but ivory. Did I say ivy? Yeah, I thought what is that? I don't know. Ivory. 
No, not ivy. Ivory. Everyone's like, ivy's not worth anything. It grows in the sides of buildings. Like, what is he talking about? Move on. So, but it's an expensive globe. And so she knocked it over and she broke it. Um, forgiveness, if, if I were to, I could say to her, hey, you know, that was 250 bucks. And uh, why don't you replace that and uh, buy me a new one? Or if I forgive her, which would be a generous and nice thing to do, and be like, you know what, I've got two kids in the house now, it's going to happen anyway, you know, no big deal. That doesn't mean it didn't come without a cost. It just meant it cost me instead of costing her. Reconciliation, forgiveness always comes with a cost. Someone has to pay the cost for reconciliation. The forgiveness that Jesus is going to accomplish comes with a price. Uh, there is something that has really happened in our transgression of God's law. There has been sin that is committed. And so if forgiveness is going to happen, there must be suffering on some end. And either the su- and this is the reality for all of mankind. For their ultimate judgment, the suffering will either come upon themselves in the final judgment, or their suffering is given to Christ, is imputed to Christ, and he takes the suffering that they deserve. So Jesus uses this word, he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. This is his mission. His mission is not become ruler of Jerusalem and throw out the Roman authorities and set up his earthly kingdom. It is to come to suffer. He has a higher mission, which is he must suffer because he's going to achieve forgiveness for sinners. He's going to serve uh, that's the kind of king that he is. That's the man, the mission. That work? Thoughts, questions? So would it be safe to say that Jesus is like, when somebody asks you, who is Jesus to you, to say, he's my savior, first and foremost, is it safe to say that? Versus going straight to the the God component of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's, well, it's certain, certainly Jesus is savior. I mean, I think that's a very common christian um yeah to call him savior absolutely savior um the the thing with and i'm a stickler i guess when it comes to religious talk because then my first question if someone said to me jesus is my savior i would say what do you mean by savior (laughs) because uh you know words have in our world today words have lots of interesting definitions Mm -hmm. and by savior you could mean he's my co-pilot and when i lose the wheel i sing a song (laughs) jesus take the wheel and i'm rescued (laughs) he's my savior Mm -hmm. You know, you could mean that. Or you could mean, he's my savior in that I'm a sinner who deserves the wrath of God. Jesus absorbs it for me. And by my repentance and faith in Christ and his work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, my savior. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, amen. I like, you know, we're okay. We're on the same page. So you'll never have a one more dance. So it's always needs to be a for, for me, is that what you're right. saying? <laughs> yeah. I, I, you can't wrap it up in, in, well, one, in one little catchy phrase. Yeah, I mean, and there's Jesus is Lord is certainly a very... No, I think you can. And I think that in a, in a circle where we've discussed hear what I mean and what we mean when we say Jesus is Savior, I think it's safe in our conversation that we know what our de- definitions are to say Jesus is Savior. But if I'm out, you know, around the town and somebody comes along and says, Jesus is my savior, I think, well, that's great. Can we talk about what we mean by that? You know, just because, I don't know, words mean things. Mm-hmm. So, but savior does imply that you need saved from something. Absolutely. So that's a good 
very good place to start with people because then you can say, because I need saved from my own sin. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It just gets scary whenever, not scary, but, you know, somebody, they said you have to defend yourself, the Bible, you know, or and the Jehovah guy comes in and they, they have this spiel that's, you know, that they verbatimly have said thousands of times and then you're just like, you know, I should just be able to stick by one little thing that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, period. Sure. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And maybe that's still going to be okay. That's all I got right now. But. Well, I mean, yeah, there's certainly, it's like talking about um, forgiveness of sin. Um, the most concise uh, description of the gospel, um, uh, for I pass on to you what I formerly received, that Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, let's see, that, that's the um, words of institution, but uh, there he says... And I never get this reference right. So forgive me. I thought it was there. This is chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. This is the most succinct um, succinct definition of the gospel. It says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, they appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And so there is kind of just Paul saying, here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And so there's, and you, you're able to say that with, I know what that means. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. yeah. I, I, anything that helps you categorize what you mean, yes, I think that pithy statements do help and are good um Gosh, the Protestant Reformation was is founded on five solas, which are sola gratia, sola fide, sola solus Christus, sola scriptura, soli deo gloria, and and those are five solas that don't mean anything to anybody really, unless unless all right, it's Latin, but unless you spend the time to understand, oh, that's what those mean. Well, then they become pithy statements that actually have some meaning to them. So, well, I think it's fair that you say that because I've written two, like I wrote two sentences and I put those two sentences into the word Savior, right? So I like wrote the, the reason that I'm able to live and my ultimate teacher for, mm-hmm. and meaning my ultimate teacher of, you know, I need to repent for my sins and such. Sure. And so I just condensed those two sentences into Savior. So I think you're definitely safe to ask me, what's a Savior mean? What? <laughs> <laughs> We live, and I, this is, I mean, I'm not, it's not an indictment, it's, it's a, it's a caution against myself. We live in a very postmodern world that your words, you define whatever you think they mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so to say I believe in Jesus doesn't mean anything anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like saying I believe in this coffee cup. I mean, might as well be the same thing, because you can say Jesus is whatever you want him to be. And even talking about Jesus as God. So, yeah, I mean, I just, Mm -hmm. it's a... The reason why we're trying to study through this, we want to nail down what do these things mean. So, third point on the outline here is the radical nature of discipleship. Um, the master is going to suffer, and what's going to happen to those who follow him? They are going to be called to suffer along with him. So I have Mark 8, 34 through 38, and also uh, I think the rich young ruler passage there. The radical nature of discipleship. We have a suffering Savior, and what he calls us to is not a theology of glory, which is a, a technical term if, you, if you're if you into theology and talk with 
People who know their Bible. Not a theology of glory, but a theology of suffering. And what he calls his people to is suffering. And so he says to them, verse 34 of chapter 8, called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for my for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? So this is the radical nature of following Christ. You, I mean, hopefully as you go through the gospel of Mark and it gets, and Jesus starts saying some really, you're like, oh my, so Christianity is like, he's, He's not just throwing out a nice world religion for you to kind of hold on to. He's really meaning something by this. I mean, he, when he's talking about take up your cross, he's essentially saying, you know, carry around your coffin with you that they're going to bury you. And I wrote down some things. He's going to carry the gun with you that they're going to end up shooting you with. Car- bring along the plastic bag they're going to suffocate you with. And bring along the knife they're going to slit your throat with. Is that graphic enough for you? It is graphic. But... That's the graphic language. We, we hear cross so much in our Christian churches, we don't realize what he's saying when he says, take up your cross. The Roman cross is a lethal, horrible, awful way to execute people. The term excruciating actually was created and made up for the pain of what is felt on the cross because it's such an awful experience. And so when he's telling them, take up your cross and follow me, it's radical language that Jesus is talking about. He's saying, um, he's just not, he's not playing around. He's not playing around. He, but he's also saying that um, there's something of greater value to gain in him than there is to gain in anything else in the world. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get to that with the rich young ruler. Let's go ahead and go there now. It's chapter 10. Verses 17 through 31. There's something more valuable in Jesus than there is in anything else in the world. I don't know if you've heard the story of the rich young... I keep saying rich young ruler because that's what he's called in other uh, gospels. But they just call it the rich young man here. But um, this should be an important story to us. There isn't any of you in this room tonight that isn't the rich in the world. I mean, you're rich. If you have a full belly, if you drove a car here, if you have a paying job... Even if you didn't have a paying job, I mean, if you're if you're on welfare in the United States, you are the rich. Your per capita, uh, per day expenditure, we're the rich. There's no way around it. <laughs> you can think you're poor by American standards. You're the rich. So when Jesus says it's really hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, we should okay. <laughs> uh, no, this is not just Bill Gates. This is not just Warren Buffett. This is um. I mean, you know, if you look at world statistics, there was a website and I couldn't find it. That used to be you could put in your annual salary and it would tell you what percentage of the, where you were at in the percentage of the population. And like when I was working at Pomida, I put in my like, you know, $30,000, whatever, $28,000 income. And I'm like two per, top 2% of the world in my wealth. Wow. I mean, there are, uh, we are rich. There's just no way around it if you research it. If you look at what the the majority of the population of the world lives less than $2 a day, I mean, and I throw away $2 at Casey's on a couple of disgusting sugar donuts. Like it's nothing. <laughs> you don't even think about it. 
And some people are living their whole lives, their whole day with those two bucks. And then I go to high V and drop five more. You know, sorry, I don't do that very often. <laughs> Just saying hypotheticals. This is the this is the Holy Spirit bringing conviction here. Confession uh, of sin. So Jesus is pushing on him, and we we could spend so much time here, but we don't have it. But he goes through kind of a, the second table of the law, and he says. Um, the, the, the Ten Commandments come in two tables, and the, the first four are your relation to God, and the last six are your relation horizontally to other people. And he, he brings up five of the last six. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. He leaves off the tenth, which is do not covet. Uh, so he, he kind of leaves off the last part there, the last one. But this man says, I've kept all these since my youth. I've kept the rules. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor. This is verse 21. And you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus is asking this man, and he's kind of asking us through this, Marcus, through this uh, telling of this man's life, imagine your life without any of the comforts that you now know. Okay, so you have no money, you have no house, your car is not out in the um, parking lot. You have no social standing, no friends. You have no security. You have no children. You have no spouse. You have no nothing. You only have Jesus. Have you lost in that scenario? I know the answer you want. <laughs> <laughs> you know the right answer, right? But this is where he's pressing on this man. This guy's got, he has his money. He's well off. He is a righteous man by all standards. I mean, likely he's um, got good social standing. He's wealthy. I mean, he would be very, have a lot going for him. And Jesus is saying, go and sell all that you have and you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus is pressing on all of us the, the high value of knowing him and the high value of what it means to have Jesus what it means to be reconciled to God. And it is of such great value that it allows you to take up your cross and follow him. It is of such great value that to lose all things and yet keep Jesus is to have gained everything. Radical discipleship. This is what, this is kind of, we're getting, this is what we're talking about when we talk about real Christianity. Is, is, is Christianity a, a religion of convenience, like, well, this is, and religion, Christianity is a religion of convenience here in Southern Iowa, where it's kind of like, well, the church is open, and that's what we've got here is Christian churches, and so we go to them, and, you know, and it works out fine. No one's really threatening us with our lives, and no one's trying to do it, you know, it's just kind of all right. But this is the, the Christianity Jesus is talking about. It's not one of convenience. It's one that's costly, and and but yet at the same time, it is one that, that gives you that which is of greatest value. Uh, Jim Elliott, uh, a missionary, died in Ecuador um, a long time ago, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And uh, I went from 20 to 60. <laughs> I, I, I know the date, but I can't. I, anyway, um, but he says, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep 
to gain that which he cannot lose. And this is what this is this is what the heartbeat of Christianity is, is that when you gain Jesus, it's the same thing Paul says in the book of Philippians, that to gain Christ is to gain everything. Um, true Christianity always begins with repentance. We've talked a lot about repentance. We've got to get going fast. But um, always has repentance in it, right? We've talked about this last week, repentance, repentance, repentance. It begins with a turning from sin and towards God. And, and often and rightly, this is considered... As the turning point from the sins you commit, the bad things you do, right? As we talk about repentance is turning away from the bad things you do. I don't want to sin anymore. But Christianity, while it's often seen starting there, and it's, it's good, that it, it doesn't just end there. That Christianity is not just the repudiation of bad things, but it's also a repudiation of many good things that you begin to put too highly. And, and Christianity and, and turning from sin, repentance is not just getting rid of bad things, but it's also turning from good things that you've let become God things. Does that make sense? This guy, money is not a bad thing. It's not sinful that we live in America and live on more than $2 a day. Nothing inherently sinful about that. There's nothing sinful about caring about your family. There's nothing sinful about having friends. There's nothing sinful about tons and tons and tons of issues that are good things. But when those good things become ultimate things and they compete with your attention and your affection, your treasuring of Christ, then they become sinful things. Does that make sense? So all these things are good things, but when they become ultimate things, they become things that control our lives. They become things that rule our decision-making process. They become things that grieve us inappropriately when they become absent. They become things that the worry about losing them becomes controlling to us. Then they become bad things. And Jesus is calling us to turn away from thousands of good things. And if they become barriers to following and, and treasuring the ultimate thing, which is him. Make sense? I just ran through a ton of things there. But this is where, he's, this is, this is where Christianity is, is really pressing on us not to just become aesthetic, get rid of everything good, but to, to get to get what is ultimately best in the right spot. Um, all right, so now to the teaching. So don't take the hard edges off the, the law. So we're back here to seriousness of sin. Um, end of chapter nine. Um, there's three things that he talks about. He talks about uh, leading astray a little one who believes. He talks about uh, amputating <laughs> parts of your body if they cause you to sin. <laughs> Not to be taken literally. Uh, <laughs> and I'm certain of this. In Jewish culture, it was an abomination to ever uh, mutilate yourself, like to the extent that they wouldn't have done a piercing. They wouldn't have done anything. They, they won't do an autopsy. Huh? They won't do an autopsy. Won't do not, I mean, there's all sorts of rules that they had against these sorts of things. So, He's not literally talking about, and some people unfortunately have gone to the extent of actually mutilating themselves, thinking that fixes anything. It doesn't. What he's trying to communicate is the seriousness of sin. So, causing little ones who believe. He's not just talking about children here. He's talking about just probably all believers and people who are young in their faith. And if you're causing someone who's young in their faith to sin, it's better for you to tie to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around your neck. So millstone, they're grinding grain, weighs several ton. 
It's better off if you would tie yourself to one of those things and jump into the ocean. That's That wouldn't be good, right? That's awful. <laughs> That's bad. Than to lead someone astray. So there's a admonition there. Be careful of our behavior and, and, and what we do around those who are maybe new in the faith or checking Jesus out. You know, when they see us, are, are we causing them to stumble, causing them to sin? Are we causing them, you know, to doubt? Are we causing these sorts of things? Be very careful. That's enough to say on that. Um, violently amputate that which leads you into sin. Hell is real and serious. Um, it's become in vogue to pretend like hell doesn't exist anymore. It's become uh, popular to talk about annihilationism or things like that, or that eventually universalism is the idea that really at the end of the day, everyone gets saved. The only problem, the big problem people have with that is that Jesus doesn't believe that <laughs> at all. He's the, talks about sin, Gehenna or sin. He talks about hell and Gehenna is the word that he uses there. It's used 12 times in the New Testament. I'll probably get, I, I think 10 of the times that it's used, maybe 11, it's used in the mouth of Jesus mm -hmm. talking about hell, talks about hell more than anybody else. But the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of of hell, and he's just he's saying, take sin seriously, that we don't want to be the people that hell everybody sins, no big deal, it's all forgiven, forget about you know just moving on. No, if if uh, if sin is present in your life, it's something to take seriously. John Owen, Puritan writer, says that uh, he writes a whole book on Romans eight, twelve, thirteen, something like that. But his big quote is to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that's kind of the idea that Jesus is giving here, the seriousness of sin. So then he goes into a teaching of divorce. And I have not left enough time to try to talk much about divorce. But the reality is, I, I don't know of any people in our world today that aren't touched by divorce at some degree. So it becomes a very sensitive issue. Because either we know, we either we have been divorced, we have someone in our family who's divorced, we have friends who are divorced, we have maybe parents who are divorced, maybe we're the product of a parent who was divorced and then remarried, and then now we're here. And there's all sorts of interesting things that come up when we talk about divorce. So the temptation is to immediately jump to, well, here's where divorce is probably okay. Um, and that's not really the tenor of the passage. Um, when I was saying at the beginning that we don't want to take the hard edges off of the law. We, we want the rebuke of Jesus to hit us where it's supposed to hit us. So he has this teaching about divorce. There's an, If you're interested in it, I've got seven points here. But there's Matthew 19 also talks about this. 1 Corinthians 7 also talks about this. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 talks about this. Luke chapter 16 talks about this same issue of divorce. But um, my seven points, <laughs> the, the main issue is that, um, and where you want this to hit home, marriage is meant to be one man, one woman, one lifetime. That is God's will for marriage. There's, I mean, when Jesus makes his appeal um, to what marriage should be about, he goes to Genesis. <laughs> mm -hmm. He doesn't go to Malachi or, or Jeremiah. 
he goes back to Genesis and he says that God's will for marriage is one man, one woman for one life. It says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, that God hates divorce. So there's... Like I said, in today's culture, it's uncomfortable saying things like that because you don't want to just try to offend people unnecessarily. But if the, we've got to present the hard edges of the law, which is divorce is sin. Um, now, <laughs> there are places we find in Scripture where divorce is permitted. But I don't want to jump to them too quickly because the other side of this is those of us who are married need to take seriously this reality that divorce is sin. And God's plan for marriage is one man, one woman for one life. The Pharisees, when they ask this question, they're not trying to, they're not like, oh, I really wonder what Jesus thinks about this. They're trying to trap him. They're always trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trap him. There's a couple of different Jewish thoughts on divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is what they're kind of debating, where Moses permits someone to give a written certificate of divorce for a woman who is, um, if there's any indecency found in her, I think is the word that it uses. So there's any indecency found in her. Well, there's a liberal Jewish uh, sect that said anything indecent meant that if she burnt your breakfast, that was indecency. And so I'm going to write you a certificate of divorce. And and they had a real liberal, they're like, you know what, if, she, if, you, if she's indecent to you, write her certificate of divorce, get rid of her. And then there's the conservative side that said that um, it was only in cases of adultery or sexual immorality, of adultery, of sleeping with some other husband. And so Moses uh, makes this allowance, Jesus says, for their hardness of their heart of a reason why divorce is okay. Um, so high view of marriage, high view of Christian sexuality. We talked about last week about sexual immorality. God has high view of these things. The Christian view is a high view of these things. Um, quickly, two legitimate reasons for divorce in Scripture. The parallel passage in, um, in Matthew 5, when you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talking about divorce, he says... This isn't to give the married people an out. This is just what he's saying here. Um, divorce. The verse 31 of Matthew chapter 5. Yeah. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So there seems to be this kind of exception of where you find someone who has been maritally unfaithful so they have committed adultery with someone else it doesn't mean you have to divorce them when that happens but that there is this allowance evidently uh, out of the mouth of jesus in the case of marital unfaithfulness that divorce is permissible not necessarily demanded but it is permissible so there seems to be a clause there the other one is first corinthians I don't, I'm going through this because I'm, everyone's touched by this one way or another. So 1 Corinthians 7 is another reason and, or another legitimate biblical reason for divorce. Um, let's see. Oh, this is talking about if you're married to an unbeliever. Okay, so verse 15. Basically, I mean, we've, we've gone, we actually ran across this for some reason when we had our other Bible study, but... 
if you're married to an unbeliever, in verse 15 it says, But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. He's not bound. They're not enslaved. If someone is an unbeliever, if they're not a Christian, they abandon you. Um, there is grounds for you to not be bound to that marriage anymore if an unbeliever deserts their spouse. Now, we cannot go through the five million different scenarios that are surrounding these issues. Um, basically, we can come away with when you say, I don't like them anymore. They don't fit me anymore. We weren't really in love. Um, I wasn't really okay with that. If it's a desertion, if if it's an unbelief, and you could, anyway, we could talk about it forever, and I don't want to, because we got to get to the next thing. So, but Jesus, I mean, there's there's a a high treatment of sin, and a high treatment of the Christian sexual ethic, and a high treatment of the sanctity of marriage, and a high treatment of the conduct of believers, and the seriousness of sin that we see in, in the life of Jesus, the Gospel of Mark. So the last thing, because we have, over. Uh, um, Mark 9. So those were the hard edges of the law. And so seriousness of sin, seriousness of divorce, um, seriousness of sexual sin, seriousness of all of these things. We don't say, oh, you know what? Everyone's doing divorce. Don't worry about it. We keep the hard edges of the law and we come in with the gospel where we make clear that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Sexual immorality is not the unforgivable sin. We have a, a suffering servant Savior. Just the last little section in chapter 10 says, there's verse 45, and this is just, you can memorize this one, it's so good. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Jesus, in so many ways, is, is the, the rich young ruler who gets it right. He had ultimate riches in heaven. He had everything you could have. And he forsakes it all to pursue this bride, to pursue this treasure, to pursue you. He comes and he gives his life he forsakes it all and comes to pursue his people. And this is what he does. He gives his life as a ransom for the many. So we take sin seriously. We, we seek to kill sin so that it doesn't kill us. We seek to cut off a hand if it's going to lead us to sin. Not literally. You get what I'm saying? But we, we keep that seriousness and we keep the beauty of the gospel as well the comfort of the gospel, the hard edges of the law and the comfort of the gospel, that when you are in sin, when you have committed sin, if you have been divorced and it's been sinful, if you have committed sexual immorality, adultery, things like that, if you have stolen, if you have all sorts of sin in your life, you do not pretend those things aren't real, but you rest in a servant savior who gives his life as a ransom for many. He dies on a cross takes the wrath we deserve for our sin so that through our repentance, our admittance of guilt and faith in his work on the cross, we are forgiven and reconciled. The hard edges of the law, the comfort of the gospel, 
the beauty of, of what we have in Jesus. Flown through. Please write down questions, other thoughts, things you have come up, uh, stuff you want to push back on. I don't want to have the final say. We want the Bible to have the final say. So things you want to push back on, I want to hear them. Um, so, so take notes and let me know and keep the conversation going. We've got to relieve the people in the child giving. So I will, I will pray. Father, I thank you for the chance to gather again with these people. The weight of the law is crushing. And when I read your standard of what you would desire, what your will is for me, I fall way short. And it's a disgrace. It is my guilt. It is my shame. And it is mine. And I am the one who carries it. And I, But I thank you that in the keeping of the hard edges of the law and in the keeping of the reality of my sinfulness, it gives me uh, the clear eyes to see the beauty of my Savior, the beauty of my Rescuer, who took the wrath that I deserved for those sins, that I might be forgiven, that I could be reconciled, that I could be His, that I could be Yours. And I want to rejoice in that. And I want the people in this room tonight, God, to rejoice in the, in the comfort, of the full comfort of the gospel, to repent in the hard edges of the law, that we could rejoice in the comfort of the gospel to us. Help us, God, as we leave this place, to have this be seed that goes down deep and bears fruit in our lives and in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.